licensed to the regents of the University of Michigan, operated by students at the University of Michigan, uniquely maintained as a healthy alternative and a positive influence on the mental health of the Ann Arbor community. You are here. show. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is poet Richard Tillinghast, author of seven books of poetry, as well as editor of the book A Visit to the Gallery, um, the University Museum of Art, which is a collection of poems and um, pieces of art from the reproduced from the collection at the University Museum of Art, also author of the critical memoir, Damaged Grandeur, Robert Lowell's Life and Work, and most recently, the collection of essays, Poetry and What is Real. Um, Richard Tillinghast is also director of the Poets House in Ireland and does performance poetry and a number of other things. Welcome. It's great to have you. Thanks, Ashley. Glad to be here. You are back from Ireland. You've moved Mm. to the other side of the pond, (laughs) shall we say. That's right. I'm living in Ireland now. (laughs) Yeah, recently retired from the University of Michigan Department of English. Um, you were a professor here for a good many years. About twenty years. About twenty years, uh-huh. and we do miss you. So it's great to have Thank you back. You. Well, as is our usual custom, I'd love to start the show with a little bit of your work. If you'll read from the knife and other poems, the title poem for us. That sounds great. Th- the knife. What was it, I wonder, in my favorite weather, in the driving rain, that drew me like a living hand? What was it like a living hand that spun me off the freeway and stopped me on a side street in California with the rain pelting slick leaves down my windshield? To see the words of my brother's poem afloat on the bright air and the knife I almost lost, falling end over end through twenty years to the depths of Spring River. The knife I had used to cut a fish open, caught in time, the instant where it falls through a green flame of living water. My one brother who saw more in the river than water, who understood what the fathers knew, dove from the old town canoe, plunged and found his place in the unstoppable live water. Seeing with opened eyes the green glow on the rocks and the willows running underwater like leaves over clear glass in the rain. While the long-jawed predatory fish, the alligator gar, watched out of prehistory, schooled in the water like shadows, unmoved in the current, watched unwondering. The cold, raw-boned, white-skinned boy curls off his dive in deep water and sees on the slab rock, filling more space than the space it fills, the lost thing, the knife, current, swift all around it. And fish blood denser than our blood still stuck to the pike-jaw knife blade, 
which carries a shape like the strife of brothers, old as blood, the staghorn handle smooth as time. Now I call to him, and now I see David burst into the upper air, gasping as he brings to the surface our grandfather's knife, shaped now for as long as these words last, like all things saved from time. I see in its steel the worn gold on my father's hand, the light in those trees, the look on my son's face, a moment old, like the river, old like rain, older than anything that dies can be. Thank you very much. Now, I asked you to read that poem because um, it, it speaks to some continuities um, that go back in time and forward in time, sort of the promise of your son growing and your um, grandfather's knife and mm-hmm. your brother and your father. Um, and you write in your essay, A Life in Poetry, which is the autobiographical essay in your collection of essays, Poetry and What is Real. You begin the essay, Everything I Have Lived Has, usually in some reimagined or sublimated form, gone into my poetry. Mm-hmm. And I'm struck by how many things you have to draw on for that to be. You are from the South, from Tennessee, um, went to college at the College of the South in Swanee, and then went to Harvard and studied with Robert Lowell. Mm-hmm. Um, went off to California, and um, as the character um, in the, the James Atlas wrote a novel, and um, you became sort of fictionalized as a character in there, and there's a letter to Lowell that is referenced in there that says you got into some heavy changes while you were out <laughs> in California. Um, then much travel figures and yeah. um, Turkey, Europe, um, and then Michigan, and now Ireland. And so I'm wondering... Much of your work really feels rooted in the Southern heritage and tradition, um, but all these other experiences play in ways that complicate and, and sort of um, turn in the poetry in interesting ways. And I wonder mm. if you'd speak a little bit about the ramblings about and travel and influences that that, that has had or made in your approach to what you write about. Uh-huh. I, um, I have, have always liked to travel... It just got back from a week in Venice, in fact, before coming on this trip. And uh, and I think it's um, um, I think it's that travel offers a kind of intoxication, um, kind of not the way th- th- because the places turn out to be not the way they might be, but the way they are. In other words, not imaginary, but real, and, and real in very uh, uh, in, in very vivid uh, ways. And I've always used things from my travels in, in poetry. It often, well, there's a poem in, in my first book called The Creation of the Animals, and um, being back in Venice, I had forgotten that that there's a painting by, uh, and I can't remember whether it's Tia, uh, Tiepolo or Tintoretto, but uh, by one of those Venetian painters called The Creation of the Animals. And I had forgotten until I saw it just now that, that, that I had seen that and that had been the inspiration for my poem. So I've... Uh, uh, I've always kind of aspired toward a rooted life, but and always praised and admired a rooted life, but I never have led that kind of life. And uh, it really, it has it has fed right into my poetry. And throughout, you've remained a southerner. Um, uh huh. 
how which is very different from being something else there's um lowell you you speak about in your um your uh critical memoir damaged grandeur about robert lowell and his life and work that um Lowell went down to Tennessee and um, mm-hmm. from New England, and you went up to then went up to Harvard and went yeah. to New England from the south. Now your father's from the north. My father's from Massachusetts, yeah. But you grew up in the south, and your mother's mm-hmm. folks have been in the south for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that like to be um, a southerner, and how you know how does that mm-hmm. figure in your in your work? given that it's something that's recognizable about you, not on the page so much, although the themes are, but in the ways in which you, the cadence and the ways you write, mm-hmm. you know, that that's very much a part of your work mm-hmm. um, and, um, and a marked bit of you. It's not anything that I've tried to do or tried to be. Um, I, Southerners have time for conversation and... Uh, good manners do survive in the South, and they don't survive everywhere. And um, and yet, staying in the South would have been awfully dull. And uh, I know that a lot of the people I like the best are people who are from the South. Who've well, when I was growing up in the South, you had to get out. There was there was no question about that. <laughs> you had to get out, and. Um, uh, my fa- that would kind of fit the profile of a lot of a lot of people that I like because you get something good from the South, but you you wouldn't you I in my case I wouldn't definitely wouldn't want to spend my whole life there. So it's it's a kind of I'm still a Southerner though I've really haven't been a resident of the South in decades. Does that getting out allow you some perspective that you don't have? When you speak of Lowell as finding that he was different when he went to Tennessee, um, were you aware of that difference before you left Tennessee or now in terms of contradistinction? Yeah, I think I was. I think I always knew Southern people were different from uh, the North and from other places. And uh, uh, there's just a little bit in the South, there's just a little bit of a, vision of um, of a way of life where people behave courteously toward each other and uh, I recognize a lot of it in in Ireland for in the old Ireland there was a, a similar kind of uh, cadence and a similar kind of care that was taken toward the feelings of other people so uh, yeah I guess it is a movable feast <laughs> Now, when you went to study in um, Massachusetts at Harvard with Lowell in the mid to late 60s, you graduated mm-hmm. in 69, was it? Mm-hmm. 70 with your, your PhD. Um, you be- were then sort of the beginning of what you've termed the laid-back generation in contradistinction yeah. to uh-huh. um, the tragic generation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and with the, by the tragic generation, sort of Lowell, John Berryman, Elizabeth uh-huh. Bishop, Delmore Schwartz, Randall Jarrell. Yeah. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about the distinctions you make when you, you call yourself part of this laid-back generation that, that comes on the heels of of the tragic generation and maybe give us a little bit about what the tragic generation is about too. Well, one of the things Lowell said to, to Frank Bedart, he said, I, I know you'll probably write something about me eventually. 
And the only thing that I ask is that it be serious, which is a, kind of an interesting thing to say. And I think the uh, those poets of what's been called the tragic generation are very serious people. And if there's one fault that I would find in and do find in a lot of recent poetry and contemporary poetry, it's uh, that somehow we've there seems to be something about postmodernism which has to do with not taking things seriously, not realizing, you know, this is the one life that we've got and what are we going to do with it. And uh, uh, so so I'm, I was glad to have contact with that tragic generation, even though I just kind of caught them on the, at the end of their run. They were characterized, um, in addition to sort of seriousness in the work, um, a sort of um, craziness in the life, um, yeah. literal madness and uh-huh. drinking drugs, mm-hmm. the works, um, the sort of stereotype of the the drunk poets logging mm-hmm. over the desk or <laughs> stumbling home <laughs> is, is not so much what we have now, but... Um, how do you think that sort of crazy life messed with this serious, um, and has it changed that much? I mean, uh, the crazy part, you, you said that the serious part has changed, but is the, is the crazy part different? Is that no longer part of being a poet? I think those were people who, who, who wanted to live life intensely and feel things very intensely, and, and that's probably why people from that generation drank so much and took various pills and whatnot. Um, it's, uh, there seems to be no shortage of uh, people living the uh, kind of hard living life among poets. It, doesn't, it seems to kind of go with being a poet, doesn't it? I, I, I always feel as if poets, uh, as, for example, the years that I spent here in the MFA program, you're you make these comparisons between the poets and the fiction writers, and it always seemed to me uh, that the poets were were those who uh, were kind of lived more on the edge. So that hasn't changed, and I'm glad to see that it hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right then. It may, it may not be the stereotype, but the folks are still living. <laughs> the hard living's gone underground, at least a little. Um, what about... The, this, the, the, the Puritans, um, sort of, mm-hmm. the, New England has this sort of Puritan heritage that's much yeah. stronger than it is experienced elsewhere in yeah. the U.S., and um, that's sort of, sort of our austere life. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that that tension between living life to the fullest and this austere heritage is, is part of what cooked poetry in the tragic generation? Yeah, I, I, that sounds like I hadn't thought about that before, but the, that sounds like a good enough uh, theory to me. I, I mean, um, getting up at six o'clock in the morning to read Walden isn't necessarily uh, uh, contradictory with having stayed up until four o'clock the night before, you know, drinking whiskey. So. Uh, I think it's maybe just a matter more of intensity than it is of uh, uh, the intensity is maybe the key that holds these different things together. And in your own life, have you found some of that intensity in the traveling? Is that 
sort of one of those other ways to live life intensely or very presently, the, the changing of place and um, experience. You, you said it sort of calls into relief um, what you see. For example, the painting you saw in Venice last week. Yeah. Um, is traveling sort of a contemporary drinking till four in the morning? <laughs> kind of well, travel's kind of a... Uh, uh, I don't know exactly what I would say about it. Uh, the you, you do find yourself in situations you never imagined you would be in... Be- you would be in. I mean, up in the mountains uh, in the Himalayas, uh, uh, you know, sleeping on the floor in a little inn, and and uh, uh, maybe a travel is a metaphor for for uh, being willing to throw yourself open to life's chances. Maybe that's what it's all about. Well, we'll think about that for a minute and come back after a short break. You're listening to The Living Writers Show on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is poet Richard Tillinghast. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Living Writer Show on WCBN. We're talking with Richard Tillinghast about his work and poetry and stuff. Um, Richard, you have been um, living in Ireland. Um, you, you moved there this summer. Mm-hmm. And you said as you walked in the studio that um, this is the first time you've been a full-time writer again in a long time. You were being a yeah. professor and writer and all these other things uh-huh. until you retired from the university last spring. Um, tell us what that's like to go back or to become for the first mm. time a full full time. That's what you're doing, writer. It, it's really nice. I, I had forgotten how much energy went into t- into teaching, and um, it's great to get up in the morning and know that you're going to, if you want to, spend at least your entire morning uh, uh, writing and. Um, you're uh, the the part of teaching in an MFA program is kind of keeping up with the personalities of the students in the poetry part of the program and while that was rewarding it's it's great to not have to have your mind clouded by the writings and the thoughts of other people uh, uh one of the things that I'm doing right now is I'm writing essays and I uh, I was inspired by some of the essay writers that I like. Tom Lynch, for example, is a is a master of the essay. And then I was reading Jim Harrison's essays about food in the little book collected in a little book called The Cooked in the Raw. And um, and I realized that what 
these people do in an essay is is kind of what I like to do in conversation anyway, which is to get going on a particular stream of thought and then have that just kind of change have changed the subject uh, uh, surprisingly, but to see how diff- things that don't seem to be related are in fact related. And one of the things that's great in a, to observe in a really good essay writer is when they pick up a thread that you kind of thought they had dropped. So I, I'm spending a lot of my time writing uh, writing these kinds of essays, and I think it's uh, it, it, it's a real discovery for my writing because it answers something in my own temperament that as a writer that I never had. Uh, even though I've written a lot of literary essays, I'd never written what's called the informal essay, and I'm really enjoying that. So to be able to, oh, I don't know, to read, uh, I spent the past several months, I've been reading about medieval history, the history of Venice. Uh, I've had a chance to bring back my Italian. I'm continuing to read uh, Turkish, but the main area that I'm reading a big book about London but to be able to just follow your interests and and realize for example that you really didn't know anything about Europe between the so-called fall of the Roman Empire and the Renaissance just to find out about a lot of stuff like that and then you find that if you are an essay writer uh, that stuff starts feeding back into your work again so those are those are some of the advantages of being a full time writer again. And are you then writing poetry and essays, mm-hmm. or focusing mostly on the yeah, essays? Yeah, po- I'm putting most of my time right now into essays, but but I'm writing poems, uh, essays, and then I'm continuing to do a little translation. Well, I wonder if you'd read one of your new poems for us. Yeah, this poem is maybe a good. Uh, you could sort of see how. My interest in the Middle Ages would uh, got into this poem, uh, which is called Meeting on the Turret Stairs. Lie down beside me, I whispered. So we lay on the bed in that room that was the whole world to us. Outside, the innkeeper's children kicked a soccer ball along the quay. Seagulls flocked and dispersed and the busy, foolish world went about its foolish business. I shut my eyes, and we met on turret stairs. I felt the braid of your hair brush my cheek like a glance. In the distance, someone was blowing a horn, voices, and boots hurrying across the boards overhead as the tower awoke by torchlight. I had drawn my sword. I opened my eyes then and saw you watching me from the pillow, your agate eyes, two demi lunettes. Horses neighed in the place I was coming out of and stamped their iron-shod hooves on the stones of the stable yard below, striking sparks like the flinty stars. A banner snapped in the sharp breeze as dawn blazed through. I could smell a river close by your body opening to my hands. Thank you. So in writing this new poetry while you're writing essays, are you finding that the processes are feeding 
each other. You, you mentioned that, that this poem um, might illustrate the ways in which you're interested in the Middle Ages at this point. Yeah. Um, are do you find material that you then write in multiple genre, or are you sort of obsessed with a particular material and then it just comes out in multiple ways? I mean, well, I think a, a, a poem wants to be, if you do work in, in multiple genres, then you you develop a sense for what will go in a poem and what will go in an essay. Uh, uh, I think, I'm sure that everyone who's written a poetry has run up against the problem uh, of, of finding that you might have too much material, uh, you might have too much information to give to kind of, uh, poems uh, uh, hinge around a moment of understanding and sometimes that moment of understanding has to be set up and, and and often the only way to set it up is to provide the information or make make the setting, create the setting or provide the information for that moment to happen. And if I find that there's more material to be supplied, if, if, if when I find that the material to be supplied would just sink the poem, then I know that I'm probably thinking about an essay. So it's great to be able to go back and forth between the two. And are you seeing yourself... Um sort of gravitating more and more toward one genre over the other? You, I mean, you've written, you've published seven books of poetry and, um, and numerous essays and, and mm-hmm. things along the way, but more criticism rather than, what did you call it? Inf- the familiar essay. The familiar essay. essay. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, are you now more drawn to that form than you are to poetry, or is it just something that knew that you're exploring it alongside this longer-standing mm. commitment to poetry? Well, right now I, I'm... I'm more. I'm fascinated by the by the essay idea, and um, uh, I, I have a feel. I mean, I was writing a lot of poetry in the spring and into the summer, and now, uh, and that you know, I, I think that'll come back again. Uh, maybe that'll come back again after I have a half dozen essays written. But it. I think that's the thing about being a writer is to. Uh, trust the process, and and sometimes something will go away, but then it'll come back, and it, you you it's great to be able to trust it and know okay, well it may have gone away, but it's going to come back. Is there a sort of um, passive component to writing, uh, which is to say that it isn't so much that it's gone away, but rather that there's sort of a lie of uh, stuff lies fallow and then can come so there's this germ you know as in um the germinating of seeds before there are plants etc i mean you know i can mm-hmm. come up with a gazillion ridiculous metaphors i'll stop <laughs> but um is do you think that you're sort of working through stuff and then it manifests as poems or as essays um unconsciously as well as consciously or i think so yeah, yeah i think that that uh you're working on those things, not realizing that you are. And um, I remember uh, Elizabeth Hardwick saying to me one time, well, I never know what I'm going to write until I start writing. At the time, I thought, well, gee, that's that's kind of a showy-off thing, a showy-offy thing to say. But 
I, now I realize what she meant that she was very sincere that you 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 don't always know what you're going to write until you so that you have all the the uh, the things are are uh, fermenting inside and and uh, the the thing that kicks them off is just sitting down to write providing the space then to do it and just to yeah or you could say even just providing those thoughts and things with their outlets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, I wonder if you'd read another poem, another new one for us. Yeah, I, I would like to. Uh, this poem of mine, Big Doors, was on Poetry Daily on Monday. And so since some people who are listening to the program may have may get that uh, website, I'll read the poem, um, Big Doors. I have seen with my own eyes doors so massive two men would have been required to push open just one of them. Bronze grating over stone sills are made of wood from trees now nearly extinct. Many things never to be seen again, the fury of cavalry attacking at full gallop, little clouds of steam rising from horse droppings on most of the world's streets once. Rooms amber with lamplight perched above those streets, pilgrimage routes smoky with torchlight from barony to principality through forests which stood as a dark, uncut authority. A story that begins once upon a time, messengers, brigands, heralds in a world unmapped from village to village, legends and dark misinformation, graveyards crowded with ghosts. And when the rider from that story at last arrives, gates open at midnight to receive him. Two men, two men we will never know, lean into the effort of pushing open each big door. Thank you. And this is from a manuscript that is new or in progress? This is a a manuscript that's in progress called uh, They Gambled for Your Clothes. And um, I'd... Can I say something about this poem? Please do. Okay. Well, I, it's interesting to me because I started up. Many people who have traveled to Italy will be uh, will know the doors of the cathedral in Florence, which have these famous bronze doors. I think Ghiberti was the artist who carved them. Uh, he, there was more than one carver, but anyway, the. Uh, the poem started off being about those doors and the stories that are in there, the fall, the fall of man, Noah's Ark, and things like that. And um, in the composition process, it, it interested me that that the thing which occasioned the whole poem should just be dropped. You know, it's not there anymore. It's kind of like it's that thing that's there but you don't see it it's there in the poem and uh, uh, I was reading um, Orhan Pamuk at the time uh, and uh, that I was writing this poem I was working on this poem in Istanbul and one of the things you brought up the subject of travel writing or travel and writing one of the things that I'm trying to do is rather than uh, when I was young I would be in Paris and I would write a poem about Paris, uh, sitting by the river or something like that. And now um, 
I don't do that. I, I try to write the poem but not evoke the place that occasioned the poem. And that's kind of, so there's a lot of Istanbul in, in here. I, I can, I just had a vivid memory of a place I was sitting writing this. And a couple of ideas that I kind of pulled from Orhan Pamuk's novels. But um, to me, this sort of poem is more satisfactory. It's not, this is a poem about the big doors at the Hagia Sophia in, in Constantinople, but, but it's, it's a kind of a distillation of those experiences. We're going to have to take a short break. It's the top of the hour. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. This is The Living Writers Show. My name is Ashley David, and my guest today is Richard Tillinghast. We'll be right back. to The Living Writers Show on WCBN. My name is Ashley David. My guest today is Richard Tillinghast. This music, Richard, um, (laughs) we were just talking about Istanbul and the ways in which um, it's inflected in the last poem that you read and inspired in some ways. Mm -hmm. Um, How about this music? Where did you bring bring us? (laughs) Well, this is a group called Birel. uh, The lead uh, guitar player in this group is a guy named Birelli Lagran, and um, he's a gypsy, and... um, He's, he follows the tradition of Django Reinhardt, but he brings it to the to the present. And um, I heard this group at the jazz festival in Istanbul uh, two summers ago, and just really it, it really clicked for me. And an essay, I, I wrote an essay. I recently wrote an essay called Water Music, which is about well the relationship between music and water, and uh, and in in Marcel Proust, he talks about Swan, his main character, um, heard that what's called in, in in the novel it's called the little phrase, and, and this this little phrase of music that he heard, and then he for a time his whole life his whole emotional life revolved around that little phrase of music. And that happened to me in uh, the, in a uh, um, recording of Summertime, which is on this uh, on this LP, on this uh, CD. And uh, um, yeah, I listen to these to these guys a lot. The uh, the hybridity, the eclecticism of the music is something that that really uh, fascinates me. How American jazz has made its way, all the incredible. You know, if you think about how jazz was, how jazz started when African musicians were given European instruments in the marching bands of New Orleans, how, you know, how jazz, how, how they, 
how European instrumentation as a vehicle for what was basically African music, how that started in, in jazz and and then how it spread, you know, how gypsies should be. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated by those different kinds of uh, hybridity. This music really uh, encapsulates it for me. And that kind of hybridity finds its way into your work. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. uh, both in the, the way you travel and the way you think about the way things travel. Or yeah, yeah. I, I think that's very important because I think you reach purity through impurity you reach impure you reach purity through a um, through mixture and jazz is all about mixture and hybridity now you're living in county tipperary in yeah, a very uh-huh. quiet place <laughs> very quiet you said yeah. to me that there's very little ambient noise there uh-huh. um do you find that you um court that quiet or do you fill it with music and other things you're you are also a musician you've been you've mm. played since you were um very young and mm-hmm. some juke joints down south even <laughs> so. oh yeah uh that's a good question um yeah i i think maybe i feel it with music more than i i think i should maybe part of the thing is going to be to learn to appreciate the silence more uh I am a kind of person who always wants music to be playing, but to live in a place that doesn't have any ambient noise or any ambient light is very uh, its very revealing and very impressive to me. I love the quietness there. Um, I know in some of your earlier wanderings and journeys, you've um, been known to dance Sufi dances, am uh-huh. I right? Uh-huh. Um, and meditate and do yoga, etc. I wonder if you find still um, part of what you think about or wander toward or around has to do with a kind of spirituality. And if you find that in the silences or quiet or lack of ambient, you know, lack of ambient noise, lack of ambient light, of, um, writing of poetry, if that's still part of the journey or if that was um, part of the, uh, the madness and heavy changes <laughs> that were California in the 70s. <laughs> Uh, I uh, I still uh, a lot of those I would I wouldn't be one to describe myself as a Sufi or a Buddhist or anything like that, but but it's very clear that once you're exposed to those ideas, uh, it, once you're exposed to those ways of looking at the world, they never really leave you. So uh, I wouldn't be so presumptuous as to call myself a Sufi, but. But I know that that has a lot to do with the way I understand things inside. Well, I wonder if you could help us understand, um, you know, sort of wrap up all of contemporary poetry for us um, to kind of circle back to a little bit of what we were talking about at the beginning of the show today. Um, the, this tragic generation was followed by the laid-back generation. Um, uh-huh. And one of the things that you have said that characterizes um, contemporary poetry is that um, it's gerrymandered into constituencies. Um, uh-huh. yeah. And now you're writing from Ireland, and mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of... I mean, Seamus Heaney we, and Paul Muldoon, like, there's some dialogue between poets, English-speaking poets on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean and those here. But even within English-speaking poets here in the U.S., um, there are these constituencies, and there's no um, influence in contemporary U.S. poetry um, of the 
kind that, say, Robert Lowell was. Um, mm-hmm. People knew who Robert Lowell was. You could mm-hmm. point to particular figures, and now you sort of point to particular constituencies. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering how you put yourself, situate yourself, locate yourself in all of those, and if you see us moving to a time that more closely resembles um, the way poetry was when you could point to particular currents, or mm-hmm. if you just see us continuing to go in these directions of... Um, well, a kind of hybridity. Mm-hmm. Well, that's those are really uh, important questions, and and uh, for which I, I really don't have any answers. Um, I I think w- when you've been writing for a long time, and then you look back over the course of the different things that you've written, and and what if you've published several books, to look at your books and see kind of what kind of books those were. Uh, and one, when you do that, um, you do discover certain trends in your what you've that you, you discover how you have your work has related to historical uh, movements. And so, in my own poetry, I can see, for example, what used to be called the Deep Image School, uh, confessionalism, uh, uh, what people would call neo-formalism because, which I think is a silly word, uh, uh, writing in rhyme and meter, it's just, I, I don't think that's going to, I don't think that's going to leave poetry, or if it did leave poetry, it would be, it would be too bad. So, so basically you, you, you kind of come up with your own blend and, uh, a lot of the, uh, musicians that I admire, I've heard say things like well there you can say there are all these different kinds of music there's bluegrass there's jazz there's classical there's country there you know there's pop uh there's rap but basically music is music and and that's uh that's what i've come to that not only the poetry is poetry and in fact all kinds of writing are writing there there there're no there's really not that much difference between writing an essay. If you, when I'm writing an essay, it, you could call it a prose poem at the same time. So um, that's so that's kind of. I'm not trying to uh, avoid your evade your question. Uh, that's kind of where I've come to. I think maybe it could be uh, not only a source of strength, but a source of. Uh, of mental well-being for poets to just think, okay, I'm writing this poem, rather than to think about what kind of poem it is or what school do I fit into. And I, one of the nice things about living outside this country is to be able to escape from the poetry wars, and uh, I feel very good about doing that. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I wonder if you'd read one last poem for us today uh, yeah, from okay. your new stuff. Well, uh, uh, some a translation that I'm kind of thinking about doing is the first part of La Vita Nuova by Dante. Uh, there's a little prose passage, it's very good, that, uh, in, from that book called The New Life. This is a poem called The New Life. The new life dawns obscurely one morning as you wake. Pale light gives a lick of white to the woodwork framing a north-facing window. The new life 
means deciding to leave, shaving your head, putting your things into two shopping bags and getting on a bus. In the new life, you wake up under a bridge and light two cigarettes off a single match, one for yourself, one for your companion. The bare spot on your ring finger reddens in the sun. That's the new life. It begins as imperceptibly as the sound of a fountain pen filling with fresh ink. Well, here's to the new life. Okay. Um, Richard, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thanks, My guest Ashley. today has been poet Richard Tillinghast. We've been talking about his work and poetry in general and um, hearing some work from his book, The Knife and Other Poems, and from the forthcoming manuscript, well, the manuscript in progress uh-huh. um, called... They Gambled for Your Clothes. They Gambled for Your Clothes. I love that. That's great. Um, you're in town and reading tomorrow night at 5 p.m. at the Residential College at the University of Michigan. Is that? Did I get the stats? Yeah, right? yeah. I'm really looking forward to it. Great. And then it's back to County Tipperary. That's right. Back to the quiet life. Back to the quiet life. <laughs> Well, it's wonderful to have you for the week. Um, You've missed around these parts. (laughs) Next week, my guest will be Eileen Pollack. So please join us again, same time, 4.30 on Wednesday afternoon. I'd like to thank our engineer, Chaz Barrett, for doing such a wonderful job. And thank you for tuning in. Please stay tuned. The Sports Report is next. You've been listening to The Living Writers Show on